MSW Media. Prevail. C'est une programme pro politique. Histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organisado, dinero sucio. Global corruption. Ta brutpou sa démocratie. Et ahora, ATP. Et maintenant, comme ustedes, su anfitrion. Welcome back to the fight. This time I know our side will win. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. Thanks to HelloFresh for supporting my podcast. Go to HelloFresh.com slash PrevailFree and use code PrevailFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while your subscription is active. We've got a great show. Jason Pack is here. Jason is the host of the Disorder podcast, which I highly recommend listening to. Um, He's a geopolitical expert. He's the author of a book called Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. He's a senior analyst for Emerging Challenges with the NATO Defense College Foundation. He's the founder of Libya Analysis, LLC, and he's the founder and director of NATO and the Global Enduring Disorder Project. He's also from New Jersey. So Jared Kushner, notwithstanding, we like people from New Jersey on this podcast. Jason has lived in six or seven different Arab countries. He speaks Arabic. He speaks Hebrew. He's lived in Israel. He's been to Gaza. He's really an expert in the true sense of the word about all the things that are happening around the world. So great conversation with him uh, where he shares his knowledge with us and and comes up with like a new way to to think about things that are happening now in what he calls uh, the enduring disorder. Just when I listen to him on Arthur Snell's podcast talk about this, it really crystallized my own understanding of what's going on in the world right now, what Putin's up to, what the Iranians are up to, what Hamas is up to, what the GOP is up to. You know, there's no solutions. It just seems like chaos for the sake of chaos. And that is kind of what it is. So, um, Anyway, listen to his podcast. Check that out. One quick note is that we recorded this on October 22nd, uh, which is not quite two weeks ago. Not much has changed since then. Obviously, um, the offensive, Israel's offensive into Gaza started during that time. This was recorded before that happened. Uh, so just keep that in mind as we're, as we're discussing the situation there. I don't really have much up top now. Um, The situation with Mike Johnson, our new Speaker of the House, continues to get weirder and weirder. Curiouser and curiouser, thought Alice. Um, Now the Daily Beast is reporting that he has no bank account, no assets, no savings account, no checking account, at least uh, enough to merit uh, disclosure on his financials, which means I think he has to have like less than $1,000 in these things to not disclose. So I don't know. It's weird to not have a bank account? I, I, it's, it's, it's all very strange. I, is this even a real human? I mean, I, I don't know. The UFOs were suddenly in the news and now this guy shows up out of nowhere. I'm just saying. Stranger things have happened, right? Either way, the guy's a clown and it'll be interesting to see what happens to him and with him. 
Um, I don't think he was really prepared for this much media scrutiny. So it's going to be interesting to see if he can withstand it. So um, something to watch for in the days ahead. But right now, I think everybody's attention is in geopolitics and global affairs in in Israel, in the war that's going on there, um, and in Ukraine. This is a great conversation. I learned a lot. You'll learn a lot. We'll be right back with Jason Pack. Ladies and gentlemen, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. You could choose salvation, but you don't. You could wind up raptured, but you won't. It's true that Jesus loves you, but he loves me more. That's why I must encourage a Middle Eastern war. You can't ride a camel through a needle's eye. I don't have a bank account, that's why. Jesus said if you hoard cash, it's just the same as Luton. I render to God what is God's and to Putin what is Putin's. You can't get into heaven if you're gay. But you get in if you pray the gay away. So I get down on my knees, and so does my wife. There'll be no happy endings, but I get eternal life. Jason Pack, welcome to Prevail. Really great to be here with you, Greg. Um, I'm very excited to talk to you. I have two pages of notes because I want to <laughs> pick your brain on all manner of things. Um, and just to just to again um, emphasize your your CV here, you've um, you know you went to Oxford. You have advanced degrees at universities in in Beirut, in Jerusalem, in Cairo. Uh, you've lived in seven different Arab countries and in Israel. You know, so you visited Gaza. You were in Lebanon during the war there in in 06. Uh, you've written a book called Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. You're the president of Libya Analysis. Um, you're the senior analyst at the NATO uh, Defense Colleges and the host of this great podcast called The Disorder Podcast. Um, so, you know, you know a lot about a lot of different places in the world, and I'm eager to pick your brain on these things. But I... I found out about you from Arthur Snell because I heard you on Arthur's podcast a couple of times. I heard you talking about uh, Libya, and then he brought you on to talk about, uh, you know, the conflict now with Hamas and Israel. And you phrased something getting to this thing about um, disorder and the way that you sort of articulated it. It sort of snapped things into place for me. Um, this concept of enduring global disorder and there are people that try to create that and there's people that don't. So right up at the top, explain that, uh, what you mean by that and how you came to that. Well, firstly, thanks for the flattering introduction. Don't know if I can live up to the billing, but my world since 2016 has been a microcosm of the global enduring disorder. I've lived it. And as a result of that, when I quit my DC job, during the Trump administration, I said, this didn't feel like working in other dysfunctional arenas. And I was seeing things happening in Libya affecting things happening in DC. 
and Russian moves in various ways being different than they had been previously. Essentially, the concept of the global enduring disorder is that we are in a new historic period. Some people call it the post-Cold War era, and that this new historic period has certain principles. I articulate that those principles are that many top table global actors seek to disorder the world and their near abroad or spheres of influence rather than to provide alternative order. This is contested by many. So that the traditional IR theory is that we're leaving a unipolar world and going to a multipolar world. And if you read the Richard, Richard Haases and Eikenberries and Steve Walt, oh, it's no different than the period just as we were leading up to World War I or the interwar period where the rise of Germany or the fall of Britain, you know, different poles of order. I contend that where we are now is not like that. And that one simple metaphor or analogy can really show that we're in the global enduring disorder. And that's if we look at how the Soviet Union differs from Putin's Russia. And having heard some of your stuff and, and, and read what you put out there, I think that this will resonate with you, Greg. Yeah, I'm sure. The Soviets had a fully formed order. It had texts, Marx and Lenin. It had an economic system. It had a socio-cultural way of doing things. And no place in the world was unimportant enough for them to try to export their order to it. Cuba, Zaire, random place in Latin America, picture a shipping container going there and you take the box out of the shipping container and it says, join the Soviet bloc. Here's how you kill your dissidents. <laughs> These are the books you read. We've translated them into Spanish for you. You can read them in Zulu as you're trying to overthrow apartheid. Putin doesn't have an economic system. He doesn't have some texts. There's no manual of Putinist economy or manual of, oh, you want to be an authoritarian strongman, follow these steps and do a free trade deal with us. He doesn't want a specific order in Ukraine. He wants that it has no order. He wants that it's completely broken. When they invaded Georgia in 2008, or when they began to intervene more in Syria after Obama didn't enforce the red line, He's not trying to make them free trade partners with Russia. He doesn't care what Assad does or doesn't do in his bathism. That really gets at it for me. He's an all-purpose disorderer, which leads to my reinforcing one of the things that you've speculated about, which is that they either knew about the Hamas attack, helped planned it, or are just now going to egg it on. Yeah. They don't ideologically like Sunni jihadis, they fought them in Chechnya. He hates Sunni jihadis. He, he is so against them in Syria. But if in Israel-Palestine it disorders, they're willing to do it. And the Soviets didn't align themselves with neoliberal capitalists if it just happened to work strategically. And that shows you how the enduring disorder is so different than what has come before. Yeah, that's a good way of explaining it. It's interesting you you bring up the inner war because I have a book that's called The Great Disorder, which is about uh, the rise of the Weimar Republic and the hyperinflation that happened in Germany at that time. So that's you know when, in my brain, I disorder jumps to that to that period of time. So I guess I, you know the, when you're talking about the disorderers, 
You've got Putin, you've got Iran, you've got Hezbollah, Hamas, you've got the GOP now, because I think that this, the, the, the MAGA people trying to, you know, stymie the Speaker of the House and all that stuff is absolutely there to create disorder. I guess the question is why? Why do they want this? What do they get out of it ultimately? Why do they want to live in this kind of world? Very difficult to answer this question for you and I, because we don't want to live in a disordered world. But having worked in Washington, I realized that the MAGA GOP is not the regular Republicans who are all about order and values and family values. And we work with our traditional allies. Trump abandoned the Kurds, you know, and he was willing to embolden disorders everywhere. And this is because neo-populists, of which Trump is one, the Brexiteers are also neo-populists, Orban in Hungary is a neo-populist. Um, they do not propose solutions. Yeah. So if we look at build the wall, I'm going to have Mexico pay for the wall. Obviously, Mexico didn't pay for the wall, and the wall was not built. And the reason for this is clear. He wants to run in 24 on the same migrant crisis that he came into power in 2016 saying he would fix. This makes them different than traditional populists. And a traditional populist, again, whatever you want to say about Mussolini, and Hitler, Stalin, they did the solutions that they said they were going to do. They might have been brutal and deeply immoral solutions, but they didn't say, I'm going to do X and Y and Z and then not do them. Yeah, They did it. They said they were going to do it and they do it. The neo-populists don't actually do it. Brexit didn't get 350 million pounds per week for the NHS. Brexit has not solved the migration problem in the UK. Brexit has not delivered the lack of red tape that they promised. It's not a it's a non-solution. And what is so interesting about traditional conservatives who've crossed over to the dark side because neopopulism isn't really conservative at all is that they look out there at the world and they say these elites, these things that I don't like, whether it's woke or transgender or just quote unquote elites like Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. their solution is now tear it all down. I don't care that my team is not proposing an implementable solution. Tear it all down. Baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, no, that's a good analogy. I it Bringing up the woke thing, I was reading about this a little more and I haven't had time to write about it. Um, that whole movement, insofar as it has an intellectual underpinning, goes back to the Unabomber uh, manifesto, right? Where there's a, uh, which is pretty interesting to read, actually. Uh, but they take a lot of this out of what he wrote about. They call him Uncle Ted. And one of the things he said in there, <laughs> right. Hudley Uncle Ted. <laughs> so so cute. Um, is that uh, when you do a revolution, you know, there's two different things that you're trying to do. You're trying to create the new system, but you're also trying to destroy the old system. And as he points out, most of the time you don't get the new system you want, but you do destroy the old system. And I think that's what, you know, these guys are trying to do. You're DeSantis and J.D. Vance and, you know, um, Josh Hawley and people like that in the United States um, are just trying to, you know, like you said, just tear it all down. Um, And I think that that's fundamentally different because, We've had a lot of foreign policy consensus during the period of American hegemony. And if we go back not only to FDR and Truman, to Eisenhower and Nixon, 
there were slight nuances and Republicans might have had a little bit more of a military approach to the Cold War. But the Cold War was a bipartisan thing. Yeah. And the idea of how we should relate to Castro, pretty bipartisan thing, how we should relate to Israel, Palestine and our Gulf allies, bipartisan. Now, the Emiratis and the Saudis are connected to the GOP. It's very bizarre. And and Trump and Kushner succeeded in this unbelievably, whereby when Biden goes cap in hand and says, hey, we've got this war in Ukraine and high crude prices are really hurting our European allies. Please produce more. And the Saudis say, we're going to produce even less crude than we were producing before Russia invaded Ukraine. Screw you. We want a Republican to win. And that degree of foreign policy becoming a partisan issue is unique to the global enduring disorder in terms of Anglo-American hegemons ordering the global system. Britain was able from 1815 to, you know, roughly put 1913 to order the global terms of trade because it didn't matter if you had a Tory, a liberal or a labor foreign policy and particularly the terms of trade were largely consistent. And we probably don't get enough credit. You know, when we think back about America, the kind of bipartisan compromise that could happen in the Senate, you know, when they went out for steak on Friday night and centrist Republicans and Democrats made foreign policy together. Those days look like, uh, you know, the dinosaurs were roaming the earth compared right. to today. Right, right. It's the, the, the compromise used to be, a hallmark of the Senate, like even in the years up to the Civil War, you know, if you read the history books, it's the compromise of, you know, 1850 and the compromise of this and the Missouri compromise. And and, you know, that they hated each other because they they literally were at war with each other, you know, uh, 10 years later and they still were able to compromise. And it's not something we're able to do uh, right now. Another place that that, um, you know, you you listed the places where the, the two political parties in the U.S. agree is Viet, is the Vietnam War which was also bipartisan. Cause I was reading about that, trying to figure out like, what the hell were they thinking? And you go back and you're like, no, everybody knew wanted to do this. Like on both political parties, there wasn't like a thing at the beginning to try to prevent it. So I thought that's interesting too, because it's obviously- This is a very important point that is not again, pointed out enough or not fully understood. Iraq was also bipartisan because yeah. to my terminology, the Iraq war starts during the post-Cold War era and it- ushers in the enduring disorder. So the changing point is somewhere between 2003 and 2011. And by 2011, by the Arab Spring, we're no longer living in the post-Cold War period. And I can talk about the difference between hegemonic corruption and post-hegemonic or enduring disorder corruption. Hegemonic corruption is what we had with Halliburton and Cheney. Yeah. The top dog, America, And then the top people at the top of the pyramid of the top dog, in this case, the guy who was really calling the shots, Dick Cheney, and his cronies enriched themselves. Yes. We didn't, for example, because, you know, the Polish and the Georgians and the Brits fought in Iraq with us. We didn't have the Polish using their control of a tiny little bit of Baghdad or the British in Basra, you know, doing some corrupt deal with the Shia militia. No, they might have slightly disagreed with the policy and you know, Blair lobbied uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld. Could we do it a little differently? And then, you know, they said no. But we had pure hegemonic corruption. 
Now, if you look at the enduring disorder, no area of the world is beyond the reach of tiny little disorderers trying to get their piece. This company doing this, the Brits or the, you know, the Italians and French are on opposite sides of the war in Libya and Total undermines French policy towards Libya and ENI is not doing what the European Union would like them to be doing. We're in a world where it's a complete free-for-all. We don't have hegemonic corruption necessarily. We have this free-for-all of medium powers and corporations and, you know, Facebook and Google and Twitter are very frequently undermining U.S. foreign policy goals in the Middle Eastern region. And, and if we would try to go to them and say, you've got to regulate this, they're like, oh, screw you. We have more lobbyists than you have experts. And that just shows you how the mighty have fallen. We don't, we just are not even in the same universe that we had been five, five to 25 years ago. Do you think it, the corporation, like, I feel like US policy was in lockstep to some degree with our biggest corporations during the period of hegemony like you know ex say what you will about exxon mobil but you know we needed the oil and, we, and u.s policy was more often than not going to help them than hurt them and now maybe it's a little bit less where because of these you know the social media companies don't have to be tethered to a, a place maybe i suppose uh that it's because those corporations even though they're american they have different values and different things that they want than the government does is that do you think that has any bearing on this it does. I'm going to provide a counterexample. Okay. There has always been a way in which big oil and the State Department have not seen eye to eye. Okay. Obviously, in 1973, um, big oil wanted a pro-Arab position to be adopted, but you know the U.S. supported Israel, and then they also wanted big oil to not allow, for example, the not the nationalizations that. Qaddafi and Abdesalam Jaloud did in Libya, and they would have liked uh, support, be it military or, or diplomatic, for uh, the attacks on the 50-50 agreement. And so for reasons of the Cold War, we did not intervene in the Sunni Arab world as they were doing those nationalizations, and the big oil companies would have wanted that. So okay. they're, 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 it's not that we've always been in lockstep with them, but the degree of brazenly going against U.S. foreign policy priorities has gotten to a huge level. And I, I would attribute this to neoliberalism. And it, it it can't just be blamed on the Republicans because Bill Clinton and Obama have, to mm -hmm. a large extent, embraced the idea that companies should just be allowed to make money abroad and they shouldn't be regulated that much here. You know, we had the 2008 financial crisis and we didn't really uh, put in meaningful regulations that would you know, change the oper operations of these these firms, let alone put their white collar criminals behind bars. <laughs> so we can't ever do that. God forbid. If you you mentioned Exxon Mobil, Tillerson yep. shook Putin's hand and got the Russian Order of the Cross for his work in the Karis Sea, and then something that I think is very disgusting: they dealt with the KRG. And I like the KRG. I'm pro-Kurdish. I go to Erbil every few years. But it was a mistake to allow Exxon to undo the oil sharing agreements between Baghdad and Erbil. And we didn't essentially do anything when when 
the largest American multinational oil corporation uh, went directly against our policy towards a unified Iraq and that, that this was very relevant towards getting towards the referendum and when there's going to be eventual Kurdish independence. It will not have been a State Department policy. It will have been a policy that corporations have brought about behind the backs of the state. Now, you bring up the the Iraq, um, that, that this is the start of the new phase. And I think, yeah. you know, clearly the the not 9-11 itself, but the response to 9-11 is definitely the the starting point for for something because of the, you know, the trillion dollars or two trillion we spent on the wars and the tax cuts is just a massive amount of money. Two trillion. I thought it was more like six trillion. It might be, but Who's whatever counting? it is. It's a lot. Now, we don't know how to count, you know, well, it's a little money among friends, but uh, it's a lot of money and it shot things off in this other direction. But thinking about disorder, um, I remember reading about in Iraq and in Afghanistan, I can't remember where it was, whenever they tried to, you know, the U.S. backed people there tried to set something up and establish something that was good and helping the people someone would come along and destroy it almost as if that was the whole point is that they they were going to die before they let this thing succeed in any way to bring order to those places so I, is that is that true or am i remembering this wrong is that because that seems like a thing that has happened yes i would argue that jihadis are disorderers they don't have a fully formed governance plan and they don't have anything that they particularly want to replace an american led Middle Eastern order with. They just want to make sure that it doesn't come into being. It's the throw the baby out with the bath water impulse, which is why white nationalist terrorists and Islamic jihadis are not that different. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If, you, yeah. if you read their texts and you watch their YouTube videos, they can be actually quite similar. Yeah. Same techniques. Sure. I, I want to make another point about the era of disorder, mm -hmm. which is that we need more global coordination than at any time in human history. Our problems are more interlinked. Climate change is the classic. It doesn't matter if the, you know, carbon emissions happen in, in China or they happen in Texas. They affect all of us equally. And this is actually the same with kleptocracy and tax havens and dark money. Right. It, it's happening all the time everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's said to be happening in the Cayman Islands or Panama or Greek Cyprus. The implications of it are equally felt in London and Russia and, 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 and California, all the same. So we're at this position where the, the seminal challenges of our era, climate change, tax havens, misinformation, mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, are all happening everywhere all at once. And yet global institutions function much, much worse than they ever did. And coordination between major powers, it is a much lower level. We coordinated a lot better under Reagan than we did under Obama. And I yeah. just accept that. It's difficult. Um, I think that St. Ronald was a flawed person in many ways. But it would be impossible for the Italians and French to be on opposite sides of a hot civil war in a core Middle Eastern country. But yet, under Obama, he allowed the Italians to work with the GNA government to arm them and have the Misraten Field Hospital. And then... The French are working with Haftar and they have their special ops in Benghazi. These are core NATO allies and EU members. And we just need to see how the mighty have fallen, our ability to have coordination. And how are we going to deal with AI and misinformation when we can't have a EU-US 
entity like a NATO for misinformation because it's just not really feasible right now. This is the era of disorder is that we need to be dealing with these top table issues all on the same page. And yet we're not even coordinating. Yeah. Um, I mean, Obama did also Crimea happened under, on his watch, which the response to that was negligible at best. I'm sure the, the Russians were just laughing when when the response came in. Of course, it was so it was so negligible that Putin thought he could get away with the reinvasion in 2022. And the only reason he thought that is because we essentially did nothing in 2014. Right. Exactly. It's it's the whole appeasement thing. I mean, the, I, I've written pieces about this, talked about a lot, like the the parallels between what Putin's doing and what Hitler did are are very, very obvious, I think. Um, so Obama also, after Trump got elected, could have appointed a special counsel like in December before he left, which would have saved us all a lot of time and did not. So or even more importantly, if we're playing Monday evening quarterback, <laughs> while the election hacking was going on in the summer of 2016, prior to the Access Hollywood tape, mm -hmm. he could have been calling it out. I'm really sorry, and I know I'm not supposed to put my thumb on the scale here, but this is an unprecedented, you know, disinformation campaign, which constitutes an act of war against the United States. Yeah. And I'm sure he kicks himself every day because he realizes that it was in his gift to make it absolutely impossible for Hillary to lose. And he was like, well, I don't want people to say that I, whatever. He was complacent. Yeah. He's senioritis in that last year, I think. And, you know, it has to be said, I think in the, um, in the grand scheme, when all is said and done 50 years from now, if there are still historians around, um, you know, Biden's going to be way up in the rankings and Obama will not, but Everybody listening to this knows already where what my, what my feelings are about this. Um, so I what I want to do is I want to survey the chessboard a little bit because and get and get your thoughts about you know various places. Uh back in uh in 2019, um in Washington Post, you wrote a great piece about Ukraine. Um, you know, this is again long before the invasion, and you talk about how the strategic importance that Ukraine has to the United States. And this is a case that uh, Biden made last week in in that speech that he gave talking about the investment. Um, Victor Rudd, who I've had on on this show a couple times, big Ukraine expert, you know, he keeps making the case. All of this money we spent in Iraq and Afghanistan, all we have to do is arm the Ukrainians. It's it's uh, as a price tag thing. It's so much less. And the bang for the buck is so much more. Why it's foolish to not do this like whole hog. So um, talk a little bit about why it's so strategically important. And, you know, why does the GOP not want this? Wow, there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> I'm going to need to move my bishop to King's Knight Bishop Pawn 7 here, because Ukraine is the geostrategically most important piece on the chessboard. It always has been and it always will be, not just for the U.S., for everyone. Halford Mackinder writes in 1904, Ukraine is the cockpit of history. And this just has to do with where it sits on the Eurasian continent. Um, it is the fulcrum between Russia and Western Europe, between Russia and Western Europe and the Near East because of the Black Sea. And it's where you go from Russia to get to the Dardanelles. And therefore, if it's closed off, the Russians have no warm water ports, right? Um, so when I was thinking about this in 2019, I was angry at the mainstream media coverage 
of the first impeachment trial. Yeah. Because it tended to focus on, would you do me a favor, though? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Trump is a comic mafia villain holding up aid to get dirt on Hunter Biden. And that, of course, that happened, right? Yep. But the, that's not the important bit. The important bit is that it wasn't on the fact that Ukraine is so much more important than Israel, Palestine, or Yemen, or Syria, or Libya, or the Taiwan Straits. It's goddamn Ukraine. Do you know what I mean? Nothing can be more important on the entire geostrategic chessboard. And that's what we should have said to the impeachment. And the Romney and McCainites of the universe, that's how we should have appealed to them, is that Yes, of course, there's petty corruption and people use foreign policy to get dirt on their opponents and they have partisan views about stuff. But this is in Zambia. We're not talking about not arming the Madagascarians to defend the, you know, the attacks from their lemurs. It's the goddamn Ukraine, people. And I've been shouting about this since 2014. So I wrote an article in The New York Times in 2014 that if the EU couldn't get their act together to provide an independent military deterrent to Russian aggression towards Ukraine when the US screwed up, essentially the EU would never be able to have a military deterrent and the EU would not be able to be a third force in global affairs. And sadly, I was proven correct that the start towards Brexit and the fact that the EU cannot win this Ukraine war by themselves they need us yeah is because they didn't even rally together when ukraine was attacked and maybe i'm just shouting about the importance rather than explaining why it is the case it's more than just geographic um these are where the gas pipelines for russian uh russian natural gas get to europe so it's incredibly significant for for that reason for for the energy security of these natural gas importing states like Italy and Germany. Um, it's also very significant because of grain exports. A lot of the Near East and North Africa, they only eat because of their access to Russian and Ukrainian grain. People are already starving because of the war. But if Putin would invade and turn it off, he could blackmail, just as he can blackmail Europe with gas, he can blackmail much of much of the rest of the world hey, you want to have bread? Do what I say. So that's a strategic dimension that, you know, whatever you say about Israel-Palestine or it's like, it's great or whatever. We're talking about bread and natural gas, the true lifeblood for these economies and people. Then this is the fault line where Orthodox Christianity and Catholic Christendom meet up. This is the religious schism that since 1054 has gone through all of Christendom and, and, and it, it goes through Ukraine. So I think that that is very spiritually significant. If Ukraine and some Orthodox Christians begin to say we're European and we're with the EU, it's going to be difficult for the Serbians to be as recalcitrant as they are. And, you know, their Serbs have always been a spoiler power. Keep in mind that World War I came about because of mm -hmm. the way in which the Orthodox Serbians felt about the Catholic Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, 
I want to see a world in which we can have this really important chess square in the West. And I have lots of Ukrainian friends, both in London and in the US and in Eastern Europe. They want this. If we can be there for them, democracy and pluralism are on the march. This is just a huge win. It's a win beyond Oh, well, in the Arab Spring, you know, Tunisia became a democracy. It actually did it. But even if it had done, the importance of Tunisia becoming a democracy and Ukraine joining the West are not in the same order of magnitude. Yeah, no, that I mean, that makes sense. Thank you for that. And uh, the other piece is that Ukraine had nuclear weapons after the fall of the Soviet Union and surrendered them kind of with the agreement that, you know, Russia wouldn't. I didn't want to get into that part <laughs> because I, I, I didn't want to go on a huge tangent, huge tangent. I couldn't be more passionate about the Budapest Memorandum of 1994 that you referenced there and the importance of having post-Cold War institutions grounded in a treaty or a architecture of treaties. World War II ends with treaties and the Bretton Woods institutions and the UN, and those institutions create you know, 30 years of the greatest economic growth that the world has ever seen, uh, the rise of the middle class throughout not just the West, but much of the world. Um, we really screwed up in not having new institutions and a treaty relationship with the Warsaw Pact countries after the fall of the Berlin Wall. But we do have this one treaty, the Budapest Memorandum, and that Obama did not invoke it when it was violated by Putin in annexing Crimea and invading Donbass. It's an embarrassment. Our promises are worth essentially nothing. You know, we, and this is not a left versus right thing. The right probably does it willingly. And the left is like, oh my God, I want to honor this promise, but we can't, we're too weak or, you know, it won't work or whatever. So we want to have an international order, but we're just not willing to either die defending it or make hard sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah. No, well said. Um, so in the war there, which has now been going on for a while, how does this end, do you think? Like, is it just Putin has to die or is it is there some <laughs> is it just that we're going to arm them and they're going to kick all the Russians out and that's going to be it? Like, what what do you think might happen? I know these things are impossible to predict, but I have been an optimist. Yeah, I have been very pleased with the resolve, not only of the Biden administration and centrist Republicans in the U.S., but People had said, you know, the Germans will never arm people. The German population will never support a war. Italians are too concerned with gas prices. That's all not come to pass. Keep in mind that even the neo-populist Giorgia Meloni, she supports Ukraine. And, and we have just seen in Poland the mm -hmm. defeat of their neo-populist and Donald Tusk, a pro-European, pro-Ukrainian, not even worried about the grain competition issues. So there's just a lot of hope in terms of the people in Western Christendom, Judeo-Christendom, support Ukraine. And that's really, really inspiring. And they are voting out leaders who threaten potentially the support for Ukraine. I had been of the belief that the quote unquote, spring offensives, which it's now fall, but it's still the spring counteroffensives, mm -hmm. would make more success than they did. And it's, it's disappointing. Um, it does seem that 
we were too slow to give the Ukrainians not only tanks and fighter jets, but attackums. Yeah. And attackums are a long range missile system like a high Mars, but they're longer in range. And they can hit Crimea now. Yeah. Right. We've seen some successes, not only hitting Crimea, but successes tactically in Donbass. These have just been sitting in our arsenal. We could have given them to them in March 2022. Right. So some mistakes have been made, and I am not as optimistic militarily. But since the start of the Hamas-Israel war, political attention is very limited. And although I think that we can walk in true bubblegum, unfortunately, the Congress cannot walk in true bubblegum. And a lot of other institutions like DOD and the British Ministry of Defense and our media, Mm. you know, you turn on MSNBC and CNN, it's all Hamas all the time. Yep. I don't. I think that Putin, whether he was behind this attack or not, he is just licking his chops because they've got us. Israel draws at the heartstrings of people slightly differently, and it's more relatable than the Ukraine war. And I'm afraid, and Zelensky is terrified yeah. that this is just not going to be on the front page every day. And it's not that the Russians are going to win, but they will blunt the speed of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which gains X number of meters per day, because they have to demine. And, you know, what the Russians have done there in Donbass with these mines is just so immoral, but they have to demine. And so it takes a long time. If they're not getting the things they need, it's really going to slow things down. And they're just going to try to wait things out till 2024 until we have our election. That's Putin's only game plan. He can't possibly win, but if he can survive till 2024, and a neo-populist Republican, because a Nikki Haley wouldn't help. But if a neo-populist Republican like a DeSantis or a Trump, God forbid, would get God in the forbid. White House, then, you know, it's game over. Yeah. Um, OK, we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Jason Pack. Well, it's November already. I woke up this morning and it was 26 degrees outside, which is crazy because it was 80 degrees like a week ago. And what that means is that the holidays are almost upon us. And, you know, if you're like me, you've got kids, uh, holiday season, very hectic. HelloFresh has these 15-minute meals that help you get a wholesome meal on the table in less time than it takes to get delivery. You know, you I'd always default kind of in the past to this kind of takeout stuff. And you don't have to do that. This is HelloFresh is a much better option. Um, it's right there. You don't have to engage with anybody. You just have to spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes uh, cooking up the delicious ingredients and boom, you've got nice, fresh meal right on the table. I had one the last time, this chicken and sun-dried tomato spaghetti. It had like parsley and almonds in it. And, uh, you know, I'm Italian. I'm very fussy about the, the sort of pasta that I have. And this, this was like so good, man. Um, you know, they know what they're doing over there. They put together these fantastic meals, you know, and we got lots of stuff to do around the holidays. Everyone wants to cut back on errands. You know, you don't want to spend time in the checkout line. So skip the extra trip to the grocery store. Get fresh ingredients and delicious recipes delivered with HelloFresh. Just pick your meals, decide on the delivery date, and sit back and wait. It's fantastic. HelloFresh's ingredients travel from the farm to your door so you know they're fresh. And everything arrives pre-portioned so you can get right to cooking. Go to HelloFresh.com slash PrevailFree and use code PrevailFree for free breakfast for life. 
one breakfast item per box while your subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash PrevailFree with order code PrevailFree. Breakfast, the most important meal of the day. And now you've got it for life with HelloFresh. Check it out. I use it. It's fantastic. Thanks, HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash PrevailFree. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we're back with Jason Pack. I want to talk about the stuff that's happened now more recently. Um, because it feels to me like everything's connected, at least timing wise, everything seems to be connected, which is uh, Putin starts upping the kind of terror kind of attacks in Kherson where he's blowing up, you know, funerals and stuff like that. And it's just they're not even pretending anymore to just hit military places that starts happening. Um, then you have the the one thing that people don't talk about, which is the Nagorno-Karabakh uh which I talk taken, a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> which was taken by the Azeris mostly because Russia stood down. Um, is that is the timing there significant, or is it just a, a coincidence? What do you what do you make of that? Yeah, it's all part of the global enduring disorder. Republic Artsakh, which is the breakaway republic of ethnic Armenian Christians in the Nagorno-Karabakh region, which was given to Azerbaijan after 1991 and has seen rounds of violence within Armenian enclave established. They have gradually since 2020 been losing militarily. And I think it's unconscionable that 
right-wing Israeli leaders like Netanyahu have given drones to the Azeris. We have essentially not helped the Armenians. And it's not just that they're Christian. It's not just that they have a democracy. It's that these are the people who faced a genocide and they had a revolution in 2020 to be more anti-Putin. Right. Now, what did we do? It's just like if you go back to 2014, where there's the Maidan revolution, which mm -hmm. was about getting out the pro-Putin candidate in Ukraine. We didn't do enough to support them. And the West, one of the things about this enduring disorder thing, which gives me a lot more sympathy for McCain now that he's dead than I had when he was alive, he loved to speak in terms of just strategic and moral clarity. And I'm like, no, but the world is complicated. And you know what I mean? And it's not just like good versus bad. But unfortunately, the way a lot of things are playing out now, we need to stand with our people who, and it's not about skin color or religion, but who support the rule of law and democracy yep. and an ordered international system. And the international system is so disordered that if you have the drones and the tanks, you can essentially take territory now. We're, we're, this is like a pre well, one kind of world. I, I, I'm not shocked that these things have happened, Greg, but I'm very sad. Yeah, it's very sad. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, the, the first Gulf War, uh, you know, where uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and then we made him stop doing that and then he stopped trying. You know, I, I at the time, I didn't really understand it. But now in hindsight, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're 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 making sure that sovereignty is sovereignty and standing up for the world order. And now that seems to have gone by the wayside. Oh, yeah. I mean, I look I look at not just Herbert Walker Bush, but particularly Baker and Scrocroft, who were his foreign policy guys. Those guys might as well be gentlemen from the 19th century in comparison to where we are now, both as Republicans and Democrats. They understood the need to have a world order and to work with allies and just all the stuff which seems from a bygone era. Yeah, well, I... I, I do believe that Biden is trying to bring this back. It does appear that he's, you know, I mean, Trump spent four years trying to destroy NATO. Uh, you know, oh, we're going to starve them of money and whatever, and uh, saying bad things about the countries that are the members and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, giving away intelligence, whatever other horrible things he did. I feel like once you create, once the invasion happened, Biden basically reassembled it in about a week and a half. Everything was okay again. I don't know if if it's going to be enough, if it's too little, too late. But I do take some comfort in the fact that I feel like he does get it. Um, do you think he gets it, or is that just I me? do? I do. Okay. He's a throwback. He's a twentieth century, essentially a Cold War leader, which we need. We need you know to go back to normal America rather than you know, where we are at now. Unfortunately, he isn't able to do the creative, innovative 21st century solutions we need. I want more global coordination. We need a NATO for climate change. Yeah. We need, um, call it a NATO to combat uh, cyber misinformation. One of the things that you would literally have to be living under a rock to have not experienced is that since the start of this Israel-Hamas war, People are shouting at each other more online, and we're in our tribal and um, ideological camps. And it's shocking the things that people say, you know? Um, where is the center ground? Where is the sane, moderate debate that we can be having? Or not even debate experts. Everyone is just shouting, shouting into their filter bubbles. Yeah. Is that bad? <laughs> um. 
I think that among all of this heat, there is no light. Yeah. So there's just it's it's an infinite amount of heat. Where are the ability to have the policy discussions about the role that the cutteries are going to play in post-war Gaza? So that's a big issue for me. It's also it's also, by the way, the next question on my list. Oh, amazing. <laughs> so you've segued right into it. So I'm not sure it's possible to have a mature debate and to do complex negotiations in the great tradition of Anglo-American diplomacy when, you know, people are shouting, you know, from the river to the sea. And then, you know, you've got on the Israeli and Zionist right, you know, they're all savages. We need to like bomb them to the stone. Like, that's not what policymakers should have to be worrying about. They should be dealing with the higher order complex diplomatic questions. But our world is now, as you said, no one reads and everyone is shouting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the Qataris. Talk a little bit about Qatar, because I, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on certainly on what Saudi Arabia is up to. And, and the UAE seems to be, you know, kind of in bed with the Saudis to some degree. Uh, Qatar has always puzzled me because I think I, I believe that we have a, a major base there at some point during the Gulf War. I still do. Yeah. And then that's where CENTCOM is based. Yeah, still is. So, you know, we have the, the, this way in and um, and yet I'm not sure what they're also kind of involved with funneling money to Hamas um, and Jared Kushner didn't like them, which makes me like them. So uh, what just explain, <laughs> uh, explain, you know, what Qatar is, who runs it, how it's different from the other uh, Gulf states and uh, why is it so important for us to work with them? Sure. Well, I want to start out by saying the Qataris are not saints. And although both in my Libya work and in the answer I'm about to give now, I may sound like I'm very pro-Qatar or whatever, that's not the case. Um, if we go back, the Qataris are from a Arabian Peninsula family that in the 18th century goes from nudged to this little peninsula. It juts out facing northward towards Kuwait and Iran. They have adopted over time a more Wahhabi or Hanbali Islam. And they were among the least wealthy parts of the Arabian Gulf because they don't have much crude oil. Only more recently in the 80s and 90s was major deposits of gas discovered, and then they became the wealthiest place in the world per capita, even more so than Norway. And because they don't have a tradition of foreign policy, they allied with the Muslim Brotherhood. So they worked with Morsi in Egypt after the Arab Spring, rather than Sisi, who's supported now by the Emiratis and Saudis. They backed a lot of, sadly, jihadis in Libya, the Libyan Islamic fighting group, the Muqatila. And they threw their hat in the ring in very destructive ways in other conflicts. The old emir, the father, abdicates in 2013. And his outsourcing of foreign policy to the Muslim Brotherhood abroad is gradually being pulled back by his son, the current emir. They're all from the Athani family. And one of the things that's been going on over time 
is the Qataris used their traditional connection to the Muslim Brotherhood to be able to negotiate and mediate in places that the other Gulf states who are very anti-Muslim Brotherhood, in other words, the raison d'etre of Emirati policy under Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ, is anti-Muslim Brotherhood. So the Qataris use the fact that they're in connection with the Muslim Brotherhood to mediate certain things. They mediated between us and the Taliban. They even mediate non-Muslim things like they mediated the Russia-Ukraine grain deal. They work with the Turks in ways that the Turks are the enemies of Sisi and the Saudis. So the Qataris are able to mediate. And as they have been moving away from supporting the hardline Muslim Brotherhood, they still let Brotherhood and Hamas and other groups be based in Doha, but they like imprison them there and coordinate with them. And the Taliban has their bank accounts in Qatar. So they're very strategically placed. And now if we get to the current conflict, Iran supports Hamas. They give them arms, they do training, and they're disorderers. The Qataris allow Hamas to be based in Doha, but they don't want a disordered world, and they don't give them arms. They pay to rebuild hospitals and road in Gazas when the Israelis blow them up, like they did under Kestled and previous invasions in Gaza. So there is only one power to my mind that can moderate the way in which Muslim Brotherhood Sunni Islamism plays out in Gaza and the West Bank, and that's Qatar. There's only one power that can cut off the funding and international respectability of Hamas, that's Qatar. There's only one power that can deliver the mediation channels to get the hostages. And I was saying this from day one, that's the Qataris. What do you know when the two American, the girl and her mom were released, it was the Qataris who could broker the deal. And the, therefore to me, the road to peace in Gaza goes through Qatar. And the only way we can get the hostages is through Qatari mediation. I'm glad you mentioned the hostages because they seem to not be mentioned that much in terms oh, I of think about them. I mean, literally response. I, I, I feel the like time. the entire point of anything that they're doing should be to get the hostages out of there. But uh, that does not appear to be the case. I don't know. Uh, I don't think that that's completely fair. It's not just that those of us who care about this stuff shed a few tears every morning for these hostages. And I do. And I'm rewatching some Fauda episodes. And if you haven't seen Fauda season three and you want a good cry. Oh, my God. Um, the problem is as follows. We have a nutcase right wing government in Israel. Yeah. Who is willing to abandon the Israeli traditional doctrine of doing everything to get hostages out of the human rights and every Jewish life. And, you know, after the Holocaust, we can't let, you know, Jews be slaughtered kind of perspective. You know, nutcases like Smotrich. And he's the extreme right. Israeli cabinet minister, and to some extent, Yoav Golant, although he's more moderate and he's going to get to the judicial reforms, they're like, we've just got to win the war and eradicate Hamas. So, you know, if a few hostages get killed. I look at this very differently. Israel needs to have the moral high ground here. They cannot be in a position where they bomb buildings in Gaza or go street by street or try to fight in the tunnels and end up killing or blowing up their own hostages. It's just essentially, it's a non-starter. Um, I hope, and I think that it could be that Biden and Blinken have convinced Netanyahu to delay the ground invasion 
and that all of this softening up isn't really about softening up. It's about, you know, putting pressure on and making time to negotiate to get the hostages out. And maybe the way to get the hostages out is not to be talking about constantly about the hostages. Again, yeah. I hope I hope it's right. I, I I don't really know. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's that is a good point. What what do you think is going to be the future for BB? Because I mean, you know, he's a he's a crook. He's he's a corrupt guy who's allied himself with this you know hardliner right wing party, and the protests all summer were because he was trying to consolidate his power to stay in power. He's basically he's very Trumpy. Um, he seems to be not a guy that I would want in charge of this at this time. It's kind of unfortunate that he's there. Is he going to stick around throughout the war? And if he is, doesn't that make him want to extend the war? Like, I I, I don't know, in his own calculus, because it feels like to me, that's all he gives a shit about is staying in power to avoid going to prison, right? So that's I don't know. That's exactly what, right. It? Yeah. That's exactly right. He's a cynical and evil fuck. Um, <laughs> he and his wife have been corrupt for decades. I incorrectly thought that as corrupt, as venal, as neo-populist and hateful and anti-Palestinian as he is, at least the one thing he probably could do was deliver security. And now that it's clear that he's not even competent enough at that, he's toast. He said something interesting in Hebrew, the Hamas guys, they're the walking dead, but it means sons of the dead. It's an interesting Hebrew uh, idiom. What I would say is that Bibi Etzmo, who Ben Mavet, he is the walking dead because Israelis don't like people who lose wars. And he's going to be out of there in a heartbeat as soon as this war is over. The polls already show this. He had to bring in Benny Gantz for the unity cabinet. He's done. There's going to be committees of inquiry. He is going to be blamed. Israel is still, to some extent, a functioning democracy. Um, it's going to function. And from Israeli right to left, settler all the way to secular peacenik, Israelis don't accept someone who allows thousands of Jews to be massacred and beheaded and raped. He is toast. When does that happen, though? I mean, is it when do they have elections? Is it is it on a cycle like in the U.S. or is it you know kind of less known? The parliamentary system, yeah. as as you may know, uh, there are 120 ministers of Knesset, and if you don't have more than 59, you can't pass legislation. There have been five elections in the last three years because Netanyahu is such a incompetent crook that he pisses off his own coalition partners. He doesn't solve any problems. You know, he's been isolating the Palestinians rather than working with them. I mean, when the next elections will be, it's unclear. If he loses some of the settler parties, uh, they could even have elections during the war, but that's unlikely to happen. But, you know, who knows? It may happen because, yeah, he's going to be conducting this war, sadly, to try to stay in power and to keep the settler parties with him. But members of his own Likud can be abandoning him. Um to want to have a unity government, which relies not just on Benny Gantz, but on Yael Lapid, who is a secularist to the left. Um, but the Israelis know that they need consensus and solidarity within Jewish Israel right now, and that it was the partisan fissures 
over the judicial reforms, which so weakened Israel and allowed this to happen. Now, of course, those partisan fissures are entirely for Bibi to answer for, because it's not just that he was trying to consolidate power, and I, I, I understand why you use that term. He was trying to essentially wreck their constitution. Israel is like Britain. It does not have a written constitution. Okay. And it's very similar to Britain in that the executive comes into power because it has a majority in the parliament. So there's no differentiation between the government, the executive, and the parliament. And therefore, if you don't have the Supreme Court in the Israeli case, or in the British case, the House of Lords and the good chap theory, to serve as a check and balance, there is no formal check and balance. They don't have a tripartite government. So when he tried to, to create more political control for the judiciary, partisanifying the judiciary, it would be making essentially an electoral dictatorship with a no check and balance system. Um, keeping in mind that they don't have states, they don't have two houses of Congress, they don't have you know, the executive being separate than the parliament. It was really, really bad. And it would have allowed a situation where they would have an electoral dictatorship. And most Jewish Israelis uh, don't want Israel to be a non-democracy. So he is going to be out. And I think that the judicial reforms are going to be walked back. And Benny Gantz said, you can't make constitutional changes during a time of war. So it's all on ice now. And I don't know if you want to get further into this, the question of the reasonableness clause, which is at the center of how this whole debate of the judiciary works. But I think Israel is a dynamic country where the feedback loop of democracy works more directly than in the U.S., and it's more like the U.K. So Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng created the British economy, and she was out within yeah. 43 days. And Boris Johnson lied about some stuff and Partygate and whatever. He's out. The British just had this by-election in mid-Bedfordshire, and this is a Tory stronghold that has voted conservative since 1932. And they saw the largest swing in a by-election in British history to elect a Labour candidate. So there is something that works about the British and Israeli democracies. Doesn't mean that they don't go for neo-populists. Doesn't mean that they aren't prey to the same divisive bullshit that we are. But when people get fed up, the democratic mechanism, I think, is going to work faster. Good. I think that's that's terrific news. Um, now, you have a, a, an idea for a solution to this problem, ultimately, after the war is over and, and you know, because there has to be an aftermath. The, the current situation is obviously untenable. Um, talk a little bit about that. What do you think should happen? What have you proposed? Sure. Now, I want to make clear. I work on Libya. My consultancy, Libya Analysis, advises oil companies and governments and shippers on Libya. I don't work professionally in the Israel-Palestine space, and I am not au courant with what is happening behind closed doors, not only in Doha, but in Whitehall and at Foggy Bottom. I don't know. This is an idea that as an interested non-professional, I'm tossing out there. Yes, I happen to speak Arabic and Hebrew. And I've been in Gaza and I've been in all of the frontline states, but I don't really know what is or is not happening. This is my thought experiment. I lived in Jerusalem in 2005, six, when Sharon said, we can't govern Gaza anymore. Our settlements there don't work. Let's do the Hitnatkut, the withdrawal. And I thought, you know, there's an interesting idea. You need to be a really right wing Israeli hard ass to make peace. Begin was a psychopath on the right. 
and he made peace with the Egyptians. Sharon, you couldn't get more right-wing than Sharon. He withdrew the settlers from Gaza. Okay. But there was a conceptual mistake there, I believe, Greg. He didn't have a deal as a part of withdrawing the settlers. He didn't have a deal with the Palestinians. He didn't have a deal with the regional powers. He didn't have a deal with the Americans. It was a unilateral Israeli withdrawal. So then Hamas wins the elections in 2006, and then they cancel the rest of the elections in 2007. And we have an authoritarian Hamas dictatorship, a theological dictatorship on the Iranian model, albeit Sunni, in Gaza. They launch rockets. They do whatever. The Israelis have to close the borders. It's not a great situation. It's an open-air prison. What I see is most likely to happen is the Israelis will fall into a trap by going into Gaza in exactly the way Hamas planned. There'll be booby traps. Israeli soldiers will be killed and kidnapped. They're going to set up situations that to bomb Hamas headquarters and stuff, they will end up blowing up their own civilian hostages. I have difficulty even talking about how horrible it's going to be. The way to avert this is to have a plan for the post-war governance of Gaza. A plan that centrist Arab opinion and centrist Western and Israeli opinion can be like, okay, this is better than before. We could kind of get into this. Unfortunately, given that the war is going on, you can't negotiate this with Netanyahu. He's too much on the right. He's too much of a psychopath. We need to give the Israelis tough love. I would like an Anglo-American diplomacy to be happening at breakneck speed, Kissingerian shuttle diplomacy, to set up this post-war governance arrangement in Gaza. I don't think you can just have the Israelis purge the place and then give it to the Palestinian Authority. It's going to be exactly like giving it to Hamas. They're not, you know, there's going to be huge unemployment. The rockets are going to get there. Then they're going to have to invade again. And then people are going to be like, we hate the Palestinian Authority because they didn't get us our jobs, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't solve anything. The Israelis can't directly annex it because then there are going to be Israeli soldiers on the streets there and, and people are just going to take pot shots at them. And if they if they don't have many missiles, they'll literally knife the Israeli soldiers like we sometimes see in the West Bank. Right. So who can govern Gaza? We need to have our Sunni Arab allies particularly those who are wealthy enough to invest, you know, to give kids scholarships to study in Europe, to rebuild the roads, to rebuild the hospitals. And those are our Gulfi allies. And it's been frequently discussed since 2006 that the Emiratis and Saudis should have a role in Gaza. But that would be only working with those anti-Muslim Brotherhood pro-Western states and I don't think it'll work. The Palestinians will be like, these guys are just puppets of the West. My novel innovation is to have a quad, which is led by Qatar and has the Egyptians because of their border and the intelligence that mm -hmm. Egypt can provide and the humanitarian corridor and all the things they're going to need to do. And the Saudis and the Emiratis and use this, this quad to have a condominium to have something like suzerainty over Gaza. And what we're going to do is allow the Palestinians' sovereignty over Gaza to be enshrined in international law, which it isn't at present. So I could talk about this for forever. There's a lot of details. I'll stop there. My big idea 
is a Qatari, Saudi, Egyptian, Emirati condominium for the post-war governance of Gaza, whereby they control the border. They make sure that no dual use items go in. They do the rebuilding. They then prepare within five to 10 years for a kind of Palestinian election, but that it doesn't prejudice what happens in the West Bank and it doesn't prejudice eventual Palestinian sovereignty or a Palestinian state. I, I that idea seems more logical than you know anything else I've heard. So you know maybe maybe they'll <laughs> they'll take it to heart. Um, so I have a couple more questions before before I let you go. Sure. Um, quickly, we mentioned Kushner uh, before. Uh, yeah. Is my my bugbear because he you know he's from New Jersey, like twenty minutes away from where I grew up, which which is I guess twenty minutes away from where I grew up. So. Yeah, where did you grow up? Uh, Metuchen. It's near Edison in Central yeah, Jersey. I, I know that's where the train station is. Yeah, I'm I'm from Madison. That's where I grew up. So, yeah, New Jersey F FTW. Um, <laughs> these Abraham Accords, which of which he yeah. is so proud. Um, what what's the deal with those? Is there anything good that comes out of that, or is it just all just a way that he can monetize stuff for himself? Hmm. Well, I do think there is some good in the Abraham Accords, and Trump and Kushner, not only in this but in other domains. You know, once, uh, twice a day, a broken clock tells the correct time. <laughs> so they got a bit right, which is that Israel needs to be normalized into the region and working with uh, anti-Muslim Brotherhood, Sunni, Gulf state like the Emirates, it was a good idea. So that part is right. Not involving the Palestinians at all was wrong. You have to keep in mind that Kushner's family connection to the Emiratis is deep. 666 Fifth Avenue uh, was bankrupt and he was saved by Emirati money. Mm -hmm. And although he has tried to do some deals in Qatar, he's always had an anti-Qatari position. And I believe that this accounts for much of the Trump diplomacy in the Middle East, like the famous when he went to Saudi and, and Trump put his hands on that orb and he met sure. the France and whatever, all of that goes back to 666 Fifth Avenue and that Emirati money, and keep in mind the Emiratis and the Saudis are aligned and MBZ is like the mentor to MBS in, right. in Saudi. So although the Emirates are smaller, they're more advanced and further ahead and, and, and they have a more sophisticated regional diplomacy than the Saudis. So the Saudis could kind of follow them. Um, because Kushner is an Emirati pawn. He did it the way the Emiratis would want. And the Emiratis don't care about involving the Palestinians. That was a mistake. And we are seeing the negatives of this because the Palestinians have felt marginalized. And they were really scared that there was going to be an Abraham Accord 2.0 with the Saudis and the Palestinians wouldn't be involved. And then that would be really bad because the Saudis have you know, the respectability that comes from being the custodian of the, the two holy places, Mecca and Medina. And um, I hope that as part of the condominium that I propose, we can have a new kind of Abraham Accords, hopefully with a different name, because the old Abraham Accords have become controversial, which will be normalizations with Saudi and Sudan and with other Arab states, Kuwait, maybe, maybe Oman that will involve the Palestinians, that will guarantee Palestinian sovereignty over all of Gaza and most of the West Bank. What most of the West Bank means is something that 
is far beyond my pay grade to figure out, but will be something like the Clinton formula. If we go back to Camp David, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yes, there are more Israeli settlers and, and a lot of negative facts on the ground by both sides since that point, but it's going to play out to be something like what Dennis Ross and Clinton negotiated all those years ago. There really, there is no other option. That's the only option. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, okay, the last serious question that I have. You're, <laughs> yeah, your primary uh, area of expertise, as you said, is Libya. Um, I listened with great interest to the episode you did with Arthur on this, you know, where you're trying to explain something that to me is completely so inexplicable. Um, what's interesting to me about Libya is the, what's the guy's name, the warlord? You mentioned him twice already. What's his name? Uh, the guy, General Khalifa Haftar. Yes, him. What's the deal with him and Eric Prince? What's Eric Prince's deal with Libya? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, it's not that connected. It's funny that that's the thing that you would ask about. The media seems to love mercenaries. So they, they have lots of stories about mercenaries. Prince tried to sell him some helicopters. The helicopters never got there. They made no difference at all. Both Wagner and Prince, who are mercenaries and have worked with Haftar, were not militarily significant. Haftar didn't take Tripoli in the 2019-2020 war on Tripoli. He never got significant muscle from either Wagner or Prince. It's just been overplayed in the media. I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that it's even something that people know about Libya. Because it's, if you want to think about the top 30 or 40, even military economic dimensions, it's not in there. Okay, good. I, I'm just curious because that's the, you know, in my little bingo card in my brain, uh, you know, I go to certain key players. And he's been quiet lately, Eric Prince has, uh, uh, on many fronts. He's a disorderer. I mean, so although I mostly do Libya, I have this podcast and that's the pivot point in my career to, like you being a pundit of all things at all times, including <laughs> Eurovision. I know you have a lot to say about the Eurovision Song and Dance Contest. So I'm becoming a, a global pundit and even hopefully cultural icon mediator. And disorder is promoted by disorderers. And Prince, it's not really that he wants to make a buck. He wants a disordered world in which mercenaries and people who break the law can never come to justice because there is no, there is no order. Yeah. Nobody to bring order, nobody to, you know, have consequences for any of the actions. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, okay. So last question before I, I, I release you, um, you've lived what in seven Arab countries, it says, right. Is that, is at that least. Yeah. Okay. What's your favorite one? Again, Syria. It, it is Syria. Okay. Without a doubt. Tell us about Syria. Oh my God. The best time of my life. I lived there in 0405. I had my Fulbright in Syria. You know, obviously it's a cradle of civilization. Um, in 1900, Damascus had 250,000 people. Aleppo might have had 300,000 people. These are the number two and three cities of the Ottoman Empire. You have beautiful uh, palaces. Maybe you can picture those black and white stone exteriors and the painted wood interiors of it like a Damascene old house. Um, it was a cradle of Christianity, you know, Antioch and 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 Rasafa and Byzantium and great mosaics. The Umayyad Mosque has these amazing Byzantine style mosaics. Syrian food is amazing. You have lots of uh, different religious sects, Ismailis, Alawis, every kind of Christian from Greek Orthodox to Greek Catholic to Catholic. 
to Maronite, which is a kind of Catholic. Um, it's a place where there's just so much culture and so much civilization. And Syrians, certainly before the war, you know, they're like Westerners. They're very hospitable. Um, shame about the Assad regime. Shame that now their country has essentially been devastated and out of a country of 20-ish million people, 10 million have fled the country. Um, and just for me living there, uh, I had a great life. I ate well. I had difficult and challenging conversations. Yes, the secret police was following me around. Yes, I got kidnapped once and I was in an Assad prison for some period of time. But still, great country, very beautiful, uh, nice people. Um, wait, what? <laughs> we don't need to we don't need to hear about the details of that, I suppose. I want to re-traumatize you. No, it's fine. We can talk about it another time. It's just that we're we're uh yeah, yeah. That's that's time. a nice cliffhanger into the next time I have you on. Um, so I, that's not a surprise actually. Thinking about, it. I did an ep an episode about Syria uh, last year with uh, Diane Dark. Oh, she's a very close friend of mine. Okay, very close friend of mine. She lives in Putney in South London. Her husband is John McHugo. We've been friends for over a decade. What a lovely woman. Yeah, he wrote he wrote a great book about Syria that that was that I read. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was pretty interesting stuff. So, and everybody I've I've talked to who's been there and loves it. So, uh, you know, that makes sense to me. Okay, so again, it's called the Disorder Podcast. Uh, please go subscribe to it. Jason Pack, thanks so much for taking the time today. Yeah, it was really fun. I look forward to working together uh, again, Greg. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossett. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8, the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time, we shall prevail. M-S-W Media. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. In our Disorder Pod, we try to order the disorder, debunking those pesky nuggets of misinformation currently disordering our world. Consider the oft-repeated Russian propaganda point that it was NATO expansion that led to the war in Ukraine. In an upcoming episode, we discuss how this is a catch-22, because the more Russia blames NATO for the war, the more Ukraine needs to immediately join NATO. NATO gave a promise that Ukraine and Georgia would one day become members of the alliance. But because there was not consensus, no specific timeline was given. So they were given this sort of vague promise. This is like, hey, babes. I get that you want to get married. <laughs> you will be getting a ring at some time in the future. Please don't leave me. 
We'll get married, you know, later. Fast forward to Vilnius this summer, and we're still dancing around the same issue. And it's like the Beyonce song. If you like it, you really should put a ring on it. This time, they creep a little bit forward and say that they will extend an invitation to Ukraine when allies agree and the conditions are met. So next year, we have a summit in Washington. This needs to be the wedding. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.